tonight's New Testament reading is Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned last week, we are in our Easter series, and part of that means that we are having uh, the other pastors from our network of churches speaking. So last week was Duke Quan of Meridian Hill, and this week is Pastor Russ Whitfield of the Mosaic Church. And uh, Russ, I'm going to invite you to come on up. You sometimes may wonder, you know, when we talk about this network thing, um, what does that really yield? What does that benefit for me, the person in the pew? And one of the benefits is, is you have eight pastors that are resourcing you. Uh, you really do. You hear from these brothers. They preach. They pray. They, uh, they teach winter term. And uh, I know a lot of you have been in their ministry. And you continue to get to see them and connect with them. So uh, praise God for that. We're so glad to have you here, brother. I told Russ that I actually know a little tune to this verse. And if he'd like, I could, you know, he blesses us with his songs all the time. But I could bless him with a song. But I think I'll, I'll just... I'll let you up here. Y'all give it up for Glenn. Snaps, snaps, snaps. I feel very prepared. I have cough drops right here just in case. I have a 9-volt battery. Downtown does not mess around making sure the guest preacher is ready to go. I'm feeling good up here. It's so good to be with you. Hi, hi. Good to see you. I was warned that this is dangerous up here. If I fall off of here, y'all pray for me. But I am glad to be here on Marathon Day. Had a great time this morning with our Mosaic uh, community and then with Grace Meridian Hill. And last but not least, I'm glad to be here with you at downtown. And I would love it if you would join me in prayer and then we'll get down to it. Father, thank you for these friends. Every time I think of them, I'm reminded uh, of the way that your generosity has multiplied gospel works in this city and that our city is better for it. I'm grateful for downtown, the sacrifices that this community has made to see your love spread around this city. And I pray, Father, that you would bless them. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that tonight your word would fall on willing hearers and doers of your word. And I pray that tonight our friends in here who are working through issues of life and faith would find this time to be helpful, that they would actually advance in the, in the process, in the journey of, of exploring faith and what it means, particularly for Christians to boast on Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. Let it bear fruit, and advance your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on one occasion, I had a work trip that I had to go on, but I, I got out of the house late for two reasons. One, 
because I woke up late. Second, because I got four kids, all right? Now, for those of y'all that don't know, there's, there's one kid, there's two kids, there's three kids, there's four kids, and then there's four kids, all right? There's a difference between four and four kids, okay? Four kids means they are full of a spirit that does not allow you to get out of the house on time. So I, I am finally able to get out on the road. I'm driving down. I'm in North Kakalaki somewhere. And I hit this construction site. And I see this. Now, I'm, now I've neglected a detail. I'm making good time, which making good time is also known as speeding. Okay, but I'm making good time. I'm making good time. And I come to this construction zone. And I see this sign. And the sign says, slow down. My daddy works here. And I was like, oh, ooh, that got me. It got me guilty because my dad worked for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. And I started making the connection. If something happened to my dad while someone out here making time speeding, how I would feel. But then I snapped out of it real quick. And I said, you know, they're just trying to guilt trip me. I'm making good time. They're trying to guilt trip me. I will not be manipulated. So I went back to making good time. And I come up to the next construction zone, and I see the sign again, slow down. My daddy works here. But this time, I literally said out loud, I I talked to myself in the car. I literally said out loud, you're not going to guilt trip me into slowing down, you you manipulators. Five seconds later, I kid you not, woo, 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 red and blue lights. The officer pulls me over. He walks up to the car. He says, sir, do you know how fast you were going? I said, officer, I got four kids. You know, I, I, I use this excuse for everything. You know, Vanessa asked me why I didn't take out the trash. I'm like, babe, I got four kids. I, I don't got time for no trash. It doesn't work with her, but now she's starting to use it on me, which is backfiring. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I lay out my sad song. I got out late. I got an important meeting to go to. And, and, but the officer just listened, and he seemed very, like, attuned. And he was like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, sir, I'm going to ask you to wait right here. I'll be right back. And I'm, he goes back to the cruiser, and I'm thinking, you know, I might have made it out of this thing alive. Grace, grace, God's grace. I, I, was, I was feeling that for a minute. Then he came back, and he gave me a ticket. <clears throat> now, as I was driving away from this encounter, something dawned on me, and it was this. I had successfully dealt with the feelings of guilt, but I had not dealt with the reality of guilt. You see, there were the feelings of guilt that I had when I saw the sign, slow down, my daddy works here, but my guilt was much more than a feeling or or a negative emotion. And that ticket that the officer gave me proved it to be so. Now, in our modern therapeutic approaches to life, Uh, It is commonly suggested that when we experience guilt, guilt is nothing more than a bad emotion. It's a negative emotion, and the way in which you deal with it is through psychological methodologies where you, you begin to help people to disconnect from those negative feelings. That's the way our modern culture deals with everything. Everything is reduced to a technical problem that humanity, with all its potential, can figure out how to deal with. All problems are technical problems with technical solutions. And if there's not a solution now, hold on, there will be. And in the meantime, we get an ever-shrinking God of the gaps. But this is actually one of the issues that brings us to see the distinctions of the Christian faith. Because here's the deal. According to our modern culture, 
If you deal with the feelings of guilt, you've dealt with guilt. But the Christian faith teaches that guilt is more than a negative feeling. It's a, it can be an actual status. It's an actual uh, legal kind of situation that we have before God. What is guilt? What is it? Guilt is when you simply fail in your responsibilities. And a Christian understanding of guilt is when you fail in your responsibilities to God and your neighbor. So the question that we all have to deal with is how do we handle our guilt? What do you do with your guilt? How do you address it? Where do you take it? We're in this series, this brief series, on, on, on this question of why did Jesus come to die? And tonight, I am addressing this one answer. Jesus came to die so that there would be no condemnation. Jesus came to die so that there would be no condemnation. And we're going to dig into the Christian approach to guilt as we look at our text through two points. We're at two points. No condemnation, life transformation. No condemnation, life transformation. So let's look at our first point. No condemnation. Now, if you look at verse 1 of this passage, verse 1, it reads like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in order for you to appreciate the impact of this text, you need to appreciate the context from which this text comes to us. Now, the Apostle Paul has, has given us the book of Romans. It's his account of the gospel. And I'll put it like this. Back when I was shopping for, uh, for diamond rings to put on my wife's finger, I was all about those four C's. Some of y'all know about the four C's. Four C's, anybody out there? All right, and I done forgot them already. It's been a long time. But I would go into all these jewelry stores, and, and then the, the jewelers would lay out this black felt, and then they would pull the diamond out, and you'd look at it for the four C's and all that. And one time I asked the jeweler, I said, well, you know, why, why do y'all pull the black felt out before you put the diamond out? And he said, because you won't appreciate the gleam of the diamond unless I lay out the, back, the backdrop here, the felt. And what the Apostle Paul does in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, is he lays out the black felt so that we can appreciate the gleam of the gospel. And he begins to talk about those immoral people out there who are jacked up doing all kind of crazy stuff out there. You might hear about them on the evening news. They're wild as can be. And he says, they're in big trouble because they're jacked up. But then he comes to the moral upstanding citizens who don't really need religion in order to be moral, in order to live a decent life. And he says, oh, but you too are in big trouble because you're jacked up. And then he says, religious people, I'm coming for you now. Because even though you try to put yourself in good standing through your religious performance and and, and your um, quiet times and going to church and showing up at Bible study and, and serving the poor, you too are in big trouble. In fact, there's none righteous, not even one. No one's looking for God. No one has a mind, a love for God. No one is after God. But then he flips to the good news and he shows us that when we're not looking for God, God is looking for us. When we don't have a mind for God, God has a mind for us. When we have no interest in God, God has interest in us. And he does a work of rescue for his people. And then he gets out into the the implications of this and he talks about grace. And then there's side A of grace and there's side B of grace. It's like one of those old mixtapes. Anybody know about the mixtape out here? 
All right, come on. All right, about to take it back, all right? Now, side A of grace is all about the love, the forgiveness, the acceptance of God. But side B of grace is about the transforming power of grace. And he begins to tell them, like, look, when you're rescued by grace, it doesn't lead to a life where you're just like, hey, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's grace. I'm going to the club. You know, like, it's not, it doesn't lead to a life of, of cavalier responses to sin. And that's chapter six. But then we get to chapter seven. And Paul is acknowledging this tension that he lives in because he knows he's been rescued by grace. And he knows that grace is supposed to have a transforming effect on our lives. But he keeps bumping into this this difficult reality. And it sounds like this. Verse 15. Let me know if this sounds familiar. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Does that? All right, all right, all right. I got one person going to help me out out here, okay? Well, if that didn't work for you, let's try verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. All right, all right. I got some more witnesses on that one. But let's try one more just to make sure we get everybody, all right? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You hear the conflict? Do you feel the conflict in your own life? You try, you try to do your best and you keep running into you. You keep getting caught up in the same mistakes. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he gets to our passage for tonight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in order for you to really get this into your bones, you have to listen to what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that there is therefore now no cause for condemnation in us. Because if we could just put on loudspeaker your thoughts from last week, you would know very well that there is cause. And everyone in here would be like, right? I don't want my thoughts from last week coming up. Y'all be like, how would Whitfield kids still alive? (laughs) And other sundry things. You see... No one in this room who claims to be a Christian can really say that there's no cause for condemnation in us. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying there's no cause for condemnation. He's just saying there is no condemnation, regardless of whether there is cause for condemnation in us or not, which there is. Paul is not saying that there is therefore now no failure for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we fail. Paul's not saying there's therefore now no struggle for those who are in Christ Jesus or no stumbling for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying there's no condemnation. There is no hanging indictment. There is no punishment. There's no judgment coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. So look, you might be poor, but you will not be condemned when you're in Christ Jesus. You may be weak, but you won't be condemned if you're in Christ Jesus. You may be confused and doubtful, but you're not condemned When you're in Christ Jesus, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Do you understand what this means? You're in Christ like Noah was in the ark when the storm was raging around him and it was all peace on the inside. 
You're in Christ like Israel was in the blood-covered homes when the destroyer was coming through and could not gain access because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. You're in Christ like Jonah was in the belly of the fish and he was rescued from a watery grave, put back out on the dry land so that he could re-engage his calling from God. You're not partially saved. You're not halfway saved. You're not 50% saved. You are saved to the uttermost when you are in Christ. And when you're saved to the uttermost, that means there's no condemnation for you. That's good news. That is good news. That's why we, we sing the songs that we do when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. Somebody say satisfied. satisfied. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Here's the, here's the wonder of the gospel. Anybody can acquit an innocent person. But God has figured out a way to acquit guilty people without transgressing his justice. God cares more about justice than anybody on your social media feed. God is more of a bleeding heart than anybody you know. But God is also able to maintain his holiness and his justice while continuing to have a big heart for his people. How can he do this? Jesus. It's in Christ that he's able to maintain the two. And that's good news for us. Jesus died to deal with our guilt problem, not just our feelings of guilt, but our status of guilty. He handles our guilt in an entirely different way than any other available option out there. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you tonight, and I'm going to suggest this. Every way of life has... uh, a suggested route to getting the no condemnation sign hung over you. Every way of life has an attempt at getting the no condemnation tag held over you. There are, I'll put out three approaches tonight. We're going to talk about modernity, moralism, and the Messiah. I had to get my three M's in there. We're going to talk about the gospel, all right? The modern approach to getting the no condemnation tag over our lives the moralistic approach to getting the no condemnation tag hung over our lives, and then the uniqueness of the gospel approach. Let's look at the the approach of modernity. Now, we're talking about everything that happened after the Enlightenment. When humanity started to increase its, 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 um, its directions in terms of things political, technological, and economic. And humanity said, hey, we're increasing our capacities and there is a, there's a decreasing need for God to deal with our problems because we can handle it with our, our technologies and our developments. And there was more and more of an investment of our religious aspirations into politics, technology, and economics, which is one of the reasons why people fight so vigorously on social media is because it's not just about politics. It's about religious commitments to those politics the self-salvation projects. Anyway, come back to this. (laughs) The modern culture has an approach to dealing with the guilt. How do you get the no condemnation tag over your life according to our modern culture? You just go the route of no responsibility. You take the therapeutic approach where all of your responsibility is dissolved into prior causes. 
your family of origin, your biochemistry, all these things. Those are contributing factors. But the Christian faith says those can simultaneously be contributing factors, and yet you are still not relieved of responsibility for the sins and the failures of your life. You're still responsible. They're contributing factors, but they don't carry the whole load. But if you continually dissolve your responsibility back, that's one approach. And here's what happens. The modern approach aims to get rid of the feelings of guilt, but it leaves the reality of guilt. But then there's another approach. There's the modern approach, but then there's the the religious approach, the the moralistic approach. And instead of going for the, the no condemnation tag with the no responsibility, moralism goes after the no condemnation tag with the no inability. You can do this. You can keep the rules. You can perform your religious duties, and if you do well enough, God might let you in. You know, God might be like, well... All right, come on. It's like God's the bouncer and you're underage trying to get into the bar. You know, it's like, well, all right, get in here. No one's looking, right? Like That's the view of God. If you do well enough, if you can just kind of, you know, win his affection somehow, then you can get the no condemnation tag hung over you. But listen, here's what moralism does. It aims to get rid of the reality of guilt by leveraging the feelings of guilt. It tries to guilt you into change. But look at what the text says. It says what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. The law can expose you. The law can direct you, but the law cannot save you. The law is like a mirror. You can see how dirty you are, but you you can't. What are you going to rub your face on a mirror and get clean? It It won't help you in that way. The moralistic approach doesn't work. But then there's a third approach, the gospel. Instead of going for no responsibility and no inability, the gospel says there's no inseparability from Jesus. You are viewed in union with Christ. How much does God love his people? As much as he loves his son because we're in union with him. What kind of favor do we have with God? As much favor as the son to whom we're united. How for you is the father He's as for you as he is for Jesus because you're united to him. Your life is hidden with Christ. And so you share that no condemnation verdict because of your union with him. Only the gospel gives you the freedom to really admit who you are and the assurance that you'll be beloved anyway. That's it. You notice in the text that the Lord doesn't condemn his people The Lord condemns sin. The Lord condemns sin, not his people. How can he do this? Because there's no double jeopardy. If if I take my children into the store and they ask me for some bubble gum like they always do, and I pay for that bubble gum, no one can stop them at the door and make them pay for it again. You have been purchased. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. And your life is now free. And, and God cannot come back and, and demand payment from you again because he's just. That's how you are free from the condemnation. It's already been paid for. You can't be made to pay for it again. You see in verse 3 that he condemned sin in the flesh. And what that means is this. That Jesus has taken away 
sin's ability to drag us down to the grave. He's taken away the ability of sin to drag us down to the grave. I had a mentor who put it like this. When a bee stings you, uh, it leaves its stinger in you. And it might fly around looking ominous for a little while, but it can't sting anybody else because its stinger has been already left in another victim. When Jesus died, he rendered death inoperable for his people. The stinger has already been left in him, so there's no sting left for us. And your last breath in this world then turns into your first breath in glory. And like Pastor Duke talked about last week, what you behold when you see Jesus absolutely relativizes every bit of suffering, disappointment, and heartache that you've faced in this world. That's that's the way that the death of Jesus works in the lives of his people. And once, once this... This grace is yours. Once you have the no condemnation tag that's hung over your life, well, then life transformation is yours. And that brings us to our final point, life transformation. Look at verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, with the result that, or for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, do you see the expected connection in Paul's mind between no condemnation and life transformation? Do you see this in the text? What Paul is showing us is that the title of no condemnation over your life is actually the surest footing by which you can get life transformation. It's only when you have this assurance that you get deep, lasting, rooted change in your own life. This is what sets you up. Jesus died not only to take away the guilt of our sin, but to break its power over our lives. And he sent his spirit as the down payment of our inheritance. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in the lives of God's people. When we feel like we can't do better, when we feel like we're too timid, when we feel like we're insecure, the spirit is present in the lives of God's people to work that transforming grace into our lives. So we don't have to do it on our own strength or our own ability. But here's the thing. We have an adversary that works against us in this struggle for life transformation. And the primary point of attack is he gets you, he gets you off of your, your understanding of the idea that there is no condemnation over your life. And he, there are two ways that he does this. First, he tells you that what God says about sin is not true. Come on, this Christian stuff, it's all outdated. We're in a modern world. You know, you got to get with the times. Everyone's doing it. Don't be such a fundamentalist. You know, he comes for you when he calls you like, oh, the fighting words. You call me a fundamentalist. Say, watch me sin now. You know, like he, t- <laughs> he, t- he tells you that what God says about sin is not true. Then when you do it, he tells you that what God says about forgiveness is not true. <gasps> How could you? You are a low down, dirty, rotten scoundrel. God can't love you. 
you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You really think that God is going to let someone like you in his presence? <laughs> ah, that's too funny. Screw tape. You hear that? No, it's like. <laughs> he plays you. He plays you back and forth and back and forth. And we have to be aware at this point of something called emotional reasoning. Okay? Emotional reasoning is a cognitive distortion. It's like, uh, what I mean by that is this. You know, back in the day, we used to have these televisions that had the rabbit ears. My dad used to make me, he said, turn right. I'd be like, turn left. I'd hold it right there. I'd be like, Dad, my arms are tired. <laughs> Trying to get a signal. It's one of the ways that our signals get screwed up is emotional reasoning. And what that means is this. It's when you take your feelings and you build the facts around your feelings. Rather than taking the facts and adjusting your feelings to the facts. Now, let me, let me show you what that looks like. It looks like this. When you sin, and you will... When you shock yourself with the ugliness of your own soul, and you will, you will feel unlovable, unacceptable, and like an absolute reject. And you will be tempted to build your understanding of your faith around those feelings and come to the conclusions that God doesn't love you, that he rejects you, and that he's angry with you. But in this case, you have to stop the emotional reasoning by going to the facts that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, you will very rarely feel your way into new actions, but you can act your way into new ways of feeling. It's called practices, and that's why we practice the Christian life. We don't just wait for the, 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 the microwaving, the, the Holy Spirit bolt from heaven. You're like, oh, oh, I feel it. Hey, so, all, right, all right, now I'm going to be holy. All right, no. No, you got to practice. You got to work it out. And before long, you will realize it's like this. I started running, not from uh, trouble or dogs or anything. I actually started running about a year and a half ago. If you would have told me before that that I'd, I would be a runner, no way in the world. It's not happening. I don't run. The, the Proverbs say that the wicked flee on that day. It's not the righteous. I don't run. But I started, you know, trying to take care of my health and all this kind of stuff. And I'm telling you now, it bugs me when I don't run. I had, to, I had to act my way, practice my way into a new way of feeling. And uh, that's something I want to put out for you in terms of, of how you seek change in your life. There are new practices, new rhythms of life you may need to try in order to begin to work this no condemnation message into your life. Give up the emotional reasoning, though. You have to remember that God does not love you because you change. He will change you because he loves you. And it begins with no condemnation. You know, that's good news. You can build on that. God doesn't love you because you change. He's not sitting there like, well, mm, mm, well, a little better. Just do a little better and then, you know, we'll see. He doesn't keep you on the hook like you like to keep other people on the hook. He doesn't play hard to get with you. You have to know that God does not love you because you change. He will change you because he loves you. And that change begins with no condemnation. No condemnation. 
In Christ, you can be absolutely honest and absolutely beloved. You can be, you can be candid and yet not condemned. Now, here's the deal. How's this work out? Let me give you some ways that I think this works out. Let me show you. I'm going to tell you first how I worked this out today after I stopped, after I finished preaching at Grace Meridian Hill. I went to Five Guys and got me a cheeseburger double with bacon because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And my wife likes to follow me on the uh, find my friend thing. And she's like, are you at Five Guys? And I said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You need to listen to the word, girl. All right. But let me give you some more helpful uh, applications. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's my third sermon today. I'm trying, y'all. <laughs> first thing that I think when you know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the first thing that it does is it makes you tender toward other broken people. It makes you tender. When you're fired upon, you don't return fire. You don't return fire. You don't hang charges over other people. Husbands and wives, you don't, you don't hold indictments over one another. Mm-hmm. Because I remember a year and a half ago, right? You don't, you don't do that to your kids. You don't do that to any of the kids in this community. Hang indictments over them. If your life toward the little ones in your life, if your ways toward the little ones in your life betray the no condemnation message, you need to repent and you need to go to them and ask for their forgiveness, specifically because the way that I've dealt with you would not lead you to a stronger belief in the gospel that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It, it, it would lead you to believe the, the opposite. So you might need to repent to your kids. Kids, if you're in here, ask your parents if they have anything to say to you this evening. My, just so y'all know, when I, <laughs> just so y'all know, when I said this in, at Grace Mosaic this morning, my daughter Tiana was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> And I said, don't, don't put your mother out there like that. You know, so. <laughs> be careful. Do your friends and your coworkers get from you that you know a God from whom you receive no condemnation. And as a result, it makes you the most tenderhearted, patient, kind peacemaker toward the people around you. Or do you, do you delight to catch people in their error and light them up? Are you a no-holds-barred, get-down-to-business kind of person who just puts the hammer on people? I want to encourage you, let this message work on the way you deal with friends and coworkers. And don't let your ways with your spouse, your roommates, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors contradict this message. Let this message next... Uh, address your perceptions of what God is like. Many of you, like me, have labored under these distorted views of what God is like and who God is. And you think that God is always peevish. He's agitated. He's angry. He's, he's like the third base coach. 
throws his hat down, kicks the dirt, right? You got this view of God that he's exacting and that he is, he's not tender, he's not merciful, he's not patient. He's waiting for you to get your act together. He's so sick of you with your garbage and your foolishness. Maybe because of how you've experienced parental authority or even church authority. But I want you to see what, what must God be like if he would, if he would lay a no condemnation uh, verdict on your life and instead lay the condemnation on his son for you. What must he be like? What must it be like to have a father like that? That's the new line of thinking I want to encourage you to. I want to encourage you to throw off the guilt, the shame, and the fear when you sin. And be changed by the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of the Father in Jesus Christ. Lastly, shift your motives. I want you to think about the way in which this message will lead you to shift your motives. Because when you're in Christ, you don't work for love, you work from love. And there's a big difference. You don't work for love, you work from love. And if you think that you've got this down already, I want to encourage you to think back through your life and hear it afresh as if for the first time. Because I'm still, still trying to work this out as a pastor, as someone who's in ministry in the Bible all the time. My life is around things religious. I often wonder if that bad thing that happened in my life is because God's trying to teach me a lesson. He's trying to prove to me that I'm nothing, that he's, he's sovereign, he's in control, and he is. And I am jacked up. But that's not the way that God works. He's not peevish. He's not, he doesn't relate to you like a boss to an employee. He relates to you like a parent to a child. There's a big difference. So know this love of God, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the final thing I'm going to say, and it's an invitation. When we talk about counseling and therapy, one of the things that counselors and therapists will often do is they will alert you to the idea of false guilt. False guilt is when you take responsibility for something that it's not your responsibility. It's when, it's, here's, here's false guilt, feeling bad about wrongs that you have not done. But we have to also pay attention to the idea of false innocence. False innocence is feeling good about the rights you have not done. Now, if we begin to think this evening about what you do with your guilt, and you realize that you've only ever been dealing with the feelings of guilt, and you haven't dealt with the status of guilt, I want to invite you tonight to place your faith in Jesus. To place your faith in Jesus Christ as the sure most certain concrete reality that your sin and your guilt can be taken away, that he will take away the reality of your guilt and then as a result, take away the feelings of guilt that plague you. That's the invitation tonight. There's no condemnation for Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the good news of God's grace. That's why Jesus came to die. Let's live in that good news. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for your word. 
We pray that you would help us to be both hearers and doers of your word. We pray, uh, Lord, for our friends who have known nothing but condemnation in their lives from, from the people around them and even in their perceptions of what you are like. We pray that you would help us to play a part in leading them to see this most hopeful message of